You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 22nd day of October 2011. I would, of course, like to welcome everyone to the podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to other websites in the Corbett Report universe, including ClimateGate.tv, GlobalResearch.ca, BoilingFrogsPost.com, and now FukushimaUpdate.com. That's right, as I'm sure most of you will be aware if you've been following the feeds this week or following my videos or any of the material coming out of Corbett Report, you will have seen that I have indeed launched a new website in response to listener feedback that they wanted more on Fukushima. So now I am providing a daily Fukushima update at FukushimaUpdate.com. This will also involve a daily uh, video report of some of the latest news going over what's been posted at the website. So I am now single-handedly becoming one of the biggest sources on Fukushima on the web, and I hope to stay that way. And I hope that people do take advantage of this. And of course, I can't do this work without your support and your help. So thank you very much to all of the people who signed up for subscriptions this week. Without that support, I wouldn't be able to continue to do what I'm doing. And now, of course, as always, we have a lot of information to get through in today's episode. So let's get straight to it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 205 of the Corbett Report podcast, Inside the Film Archive. Now, if you had gone to thefilmarchive.org or youtube.com slash thefilmarchive on the 19th of October 2011, you would have been treated to this very interesting 1972 documentary. Colonel Mama Gaddafi, just 32 years old, the ruler of oil-rich Libya. Gaddafi came to power just four years ago when he deposed the aging King Idris. Today, at Tripoli Airport, he welcomes his friend, President Said Barre of Somalia. Both are fanatics, but Gaddafi's coup was bloodless. He has no taste for violence at home. He prefers to export the bloody libation of fanaticism. A street in Belfast, another bomb. Innocent victims, scarred for the rest of their lives. The money that paid for it probably came from Libya. Each year, the IRA collects a check for $2 million from one of Gaddafi's money managers in Tripoli. Round the globe, dozens of scenes like this are being enacted for the benefit of Gaddafi's crusade. In this issue, Echo documents the man who has turned the gift of vast wealth to the benefit of evil. Tripoli, capital of Libya. Once it was a gay, bright city where tourists came to enjoy the sun, the sea and the night spots. But today, Tripoli has lost her smile beneath the dead cloak of Gaddafi's Puritan zeal. Women are back in Perda, Adulterers are whipped. Thieves have their hands amputated. Tripoli has lost a hundred years of progress during the last four. 
Gaddafi once said, the Arab nation needs someone to make it weep and not laugh. That he has set himself to do. His instrument is oil and the money it brings. Under the Libyan deserts, there are oil reserves of three and a half thousand million tons. Already, Gaddafi's regime has three thousand million dollars in the bank enough to give every one of Libya's people a better standard of life. But so far, Gaddafi has shown little interest in their needs. In Libya's oil, Gaddafi sees a vast reservoir of personal power, power he hopes one day to make him leader of the Arab world. Without oil, Libya would be a backwater. With it, Gaddafi can afford to dream of filling Nasser's empty shoes stand between Egypt's Sadat and Syria's Assad. Only 2% of Libya is cultivated, the rest is desert. Money could make half the desert productive. Gaddafi prefers to spend the money on other things. Instead, he gives his people soldiers, guns and tanks. Gaddafi's oil has fed a vision far beyond the needs of Libya's two million people. He shares Nasser's dream of a united Arab world, but united under the leadership of Mama Gaddafi. The first step he saw on that road was union with Libya's neighbor, Egypt. In return for promises of economic assistance, Anwar Sadat signed an agreement with Gaddafi to merge the two countries within one year. Under the agreement, Gaddafi would share as an equal the presidency of 37 million people. The Arab world was skeptical. Few could believe that the Egyptians would allow themselves to be ruled by a young hothead from the desert, or that Gaddafi would make good on his pledge of aid. We asked President Gaddafi about these criticisms. It is quite clear that those who spread such noises, such thoughts as this, are the enemies of Arab unity. And it is mainly imperialist countries who spread this sort of rumor against unity. That's why between brother Arab countries, there is no weak and no strong, no wolves to eat the lamb. Perhaps not wolves, but certainly reluctant allies. Sadat was hesitant to embrace Gaddafiism. In July, Gaddafi girded thousands of Libyans to march on Egypt to pressure Sadat into cooperation. But Sadat had bigger fish to fry. As Gaddafi's hysterical campaign reached its height, Sadat and Syria's Assad were putting the final touches to their plans for war with Israel. Today, Gaddafi's plans have been firmly shelved along with his promised aid. Most Egyptians hope they'll stay there and gather dust. He may have failed for the moment, but is Gaddafi conducting a one-man campaign for leadership of the Arab world? 
This is the feeling of others. And they have a right to state their attitudes and express their feelings. As for myself, I do not feel this. I feel I am just one of the soldiers of this nation who has a duty to fulfill, and this is quite enough. Yes, well, crudely crafted propaganda to be sure, but at least its bias and agenda are easy enough to discern and discredit. The money that paid for it probably came from Libya. Oh, probably. Well, that's good enough for me. I don't know about you. Yes, well, as I say, the bias and agenda in that report is easy enough to discern, but in some ways that at least lets us not focus on the idea that this is presenting us with an objective view of reality and instead listen for the factual material that's being presented. And as you may have observed, at the very least, that report, again, a 1972 documentary, at least that report actually gave Gaddafi some time to speak, and we actually got to hear a little bit of what he had to say, which is far more than you would find in any similar piece uh, in this day and age, assuming that a similar piece could be found at all. And I would venture to guess that you probably learnt more about the history of Libya and Muammar Gaddafi's role in that history in the last 10 minutes than you did in the previous seven months of reporting reporting on the issue by the various mainstream entities who have absolutely completely abdicated their responsibility to report in a clear, concise, factual, or sober manner. So that, in a nutshell, is the paradoxical value of the film archive, or at least a certain section of the film archive. But perhaps I get ahead of myself. I should actually introduce the film archive to you in case this is your first time hearing about it. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, the film archive is available at thefilmarchive.org or youtube.com slash thefilmarchive. And it is essentially a repository of archival footage from the last several decades covering a, and such a bizarre, such a wide, eclectic range of material that I think it's very difficult to encompass. So I will let you go and peruse the collection for yourself, but I think there are certain broad categories that correspond to some of the, uh, the, the types of videos that you'll probably find in that collection. And you will notice that there's definitely a bent towards uh, documentary films and films relating to history, historical events, and, uh, and foreign policy. And uh, definitely there's a lot of information and a complete plethora, a treasure trove of information of CIA, FBI, and other alphabet soup type uh, propaganda films and training films and documentary films and, and all sorts of information on, on those alphabet agencies, by those alphabet agencies, and exposing those alphabet agencies. Very, very interesting material indeed, and material that really you're not going to find, at least not all in one easily browsable place anywhere else on the web that I know of. So the film archive is something that I would very much like to spend today's episode introducing to you. And to that end, it was my honor earlier this week to talk to the curator of this interesting collection of archival footage. So perhaps I'll let him explain for himself, really, what this is and how it was put together. 
This is James Corbett, and you're tuned into CorbettReport.com. It is the 21st day of October 2011 here in Japan, and today I'm joined on the line from Canada by Eric Dion, the curator of a collection called The Film Archive at YouTube.com slash The Film Archive, and also TheFilmArchive.org. Uh, an incredible collection of, of clips and, um, and uh, video footage from for throughout several decades, really. Uh, just a, just an amazing uh, repository of information. So, Eric Dion, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, well, I, I think I indicated sort of what the general nature of the film archive is there, but perhaps you can go into some uh, more detail for us. Uh, precisely what is the film archive, and how did it start to come together? Well, I started a few years back, um, around, I think it was 2008, I started... Uh, just posting YouTube uh, videos, and uh, there wasn't any um, one purpose to it. It was just to um, post archival clips and uh, just things that I was interested in. Um, But um, since then, it's kind of um, steered in a few directions. Uh, One is the um, political direction, which um, involves... Uh, a lot of the films that you've mentioned in the past, the CIA, FBI, things of that nature. And I also cover a bit of the, the cultural side, and it's really just documenting um, the history of the United States through various archival clips and uh, and a lot of footage. So it's really just um, a resource to point, um, to point in the direction of, you know, whatever people are interested in. I try to I try to incorporate a lot of audience feedback in terms of what I post, you know, if they like certain clips or dislike other clips. But uh, it's fairly broad-based in scope, but um, obviously uh, a lot of it's geared towards my interests. So there's a lot of uh, political material there and a lot of clips from from the 50s to the 70s and a few uh, few recent clips as well. That's right. Well, as you indicate, I mean, it's just such a, a diverse a range of material. And, and uh, of course, there is certainly the political um, FBI and CIA archival type uh, footage. But also, I mean, there's there's all sorts of things in here, including um, uh, uh, old films and, and cartoons and all sorts of things. So, so it is quite an eclectic collection. So I guess that raises the question of how you um, collect these clips. Where do you get them from and, and how do you post them? Well, it's uh, there's a variety of sources um, that are available uh, here in Canada. We have um, a great collection uh, in Ottawa called Library and Archives Canada, and they have pretty much almost the entire recorded history of uh, all of Canadian film and TV and so on. So that was a, a big starting point, certainly for getting me interested in and just collecting footage and. Um, in terms of the United States, um, there are a lot of great resources. Um, in one instance, um, learning about the CIA film library, I, I found a site called uh, the memoryhole.org. I don't think it exists anymore, but on that site, they they had a, a listing from a Freedom of Information Act request where they went through uh, uh, all these different films that the CIA had, and they had instructions of how to request them and, and so on. So they had things like Animal Farm and different clips that the CIA had. So um, just requesting those, there's uh, lots of films in the National Archives. Um, and uh, in terms of some of the clips that I've seen on your program, um, there's a great show, uh, or 
um, in Texas um, back in the 70s, and then it lasted up until the mid-90s called Alternative Views. And they posted a lot of great clips as well. And uh, they had a very large focus on uh, foreign policy, uh, CIA, FBI, uh, religious matters as well. So um, the sources are varied, but uh, there's also a lot of great clips to be found on uh, archive.org. Um, so, you know, pretty much anywhere I can find them, I'll, I'll post them. And and you have so many clips, and, and they continue to come out on, on pretty much a daily basis from what I can see. I mean, this must be, if not a full-time endeavor, at least must take a, a, a large amount of your time. Yeah, I mean, and it, what what happens is that I'm only able to devote um, time to certain activities. So um, a lot of the descriptions for the videos are taken from sources like Wikipedia, which is just easy to get uh, descriptions where I don't have to write them all myself. But uh, yeah, in terms of posting the clips, it's uh, pretty much on a continual basis. Uh, there are a few channels now that kind of spread out uh, the content in terms of, you know, TV is more on one channel and um, political stuff is more on other channels. But um, but yeah, it, the nice thing is that uh, YouTube allows you to, to just uh, continually post. And, uh, you know, some people have commented saying, you know, what are you doing, you know, home at this time, posting these kind of videos and so on. But um, most of the time it's happening automatically. Um, I don't actually have to be there for the, for the videos to be posted. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely you know, taking up a lot of a lot of my time currently. But, um, but it's fun. It's, it's mostly a hobby at this point. But uh, um, as long as people continue to enjoy it, I'll, I'll continue doing it. Well, I have no doubt that many people are enjoying it. And in fact, I, I would venture to guess that probably the majority of my listeners have encountered some of your clips uh, in their own research, whether they, they realize it's from the film archive or not. Um, and certainly I have, uh, over the course of my research over the last few years, certainly definitely seen uh, the film archive pop up time and again, which is why I wanted to get you on today, because I, I really have realized, come to realize just how valuable a collection this is. So uh, so definitely my hat's off to you for all this work. But I guess uh, to, to get more in depth about the, the archive itself, perhaps you can tell us uh, how big is the archive? What are some of the most uh, popular uh, clips, and how many views do you have on YouTube? That sort of information. Sure. Um, well, the uh, I haven't really looked at the the total number. I think there are over two thousand videos on on the main channel, and I think there are almost another thousand on on some of the sub channels, and they're all linked off of the uh, the main channel. But um, some of the more Popular videos, um, some of them have to do with the CIA. One of my favorites is, um, is a documentary on the M MK Ultra program um, from the 1970s, and it's just a really good piece of investigative journalism that kind of um, makes you wish that the, that kind of reporting um, still existed because uh, obviously a lot of work went into it, and it wasn't just, you know, patched together with a few sound bites and so on. Like they actually did the research. Um, some of the other clips, uh, a lot of people are interested in um, in drugs, uh, LSD tests and so on, CIA did in the 1950s. Um, those get a lot of uh, upvotes. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think a lot, of the, uh, a lot of Vietnam War clips as well uh, are definitely popular. And I find it's just, um, a lot of it has to do with 
what people remember. You know, if they're if they're searching for um, a certain type of clip, it's usually something they might have seen before or something similar. Um, so they'll end up uh, looking a lot for that. So a lot of people, you know, saying that you know, I remember seeing this you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they're really just looking to to see it again. And then there are those who are you know doing research on on a given topic, and they use it for other school or um, or shows like yours, and uh, so it's um, it's really there for that. And there are a lot of um, a lot of C-SPAN clips as well, as you mentioned, and uh, that that's been a great resource. And that's really when um, I started to get a lot more visitors. I think I think now the it's up to a few a few million hits uh, on the videos. I haven't done a, a full tally, but I think it's listed on on the main page. And um, and that's really when um, a lot of people started to subscribe. Was uh, posting a lot of uh, interviews with uh, political commentators, uh, um, old uh, CIA officers like John Stockwell and um, and some others, Phil Ag, and um, and really I just started to follow that, you know, following the audience and and seeing what they liked. Uh, posted a lot of Iran Contra. Uh, testimony of Ronald Reagan uh, from Iran Contra as well, which most people haven't seen. Um, so yeah, I just I just try to, you know, follow what uh, what people are interested in. But uh, it's not always clear. But uh, they end up doing a lot of the watching for me because obviously yeah, I don't have time to watch every minute of every clip. So often uh, viewers will point out either interesting things in clips or things that are wrong or missing or need to be fixed. So it uh, in that sense, it's uh, it's a collaborative effort in the sense that they, you know, really helped me out in terms of uh, doing a lot of the fixes that uh, need to happen on the videos. That that's right. Well, uh, that's why I I thought uh, originally this either must be a, a group effort of some sort, maybe a, a group of people who are doing this, or it must be some sort of collaborative effort in the sense that you said, because because certainly there's just so much footage that I, I imagine one person uh, could not possibly watch all of this uh, unless they were doing it full time. Yeah. Um, absolutely, just just an incredible collection, and and no need for uh, for modesty. You have uh, I'm looking at YouTube.com/slash/TheFilmArchive right now. It's 9.8 million upload views so far which is a clear couple million more than the corporate report has now so so absolutely uh definitely a lot of people are checking this out and finding value in these clips and uh, certainly some of them have hundreds of thousands of views so uh, just a, an incredible collection and and uh you note uh you noted that a lot of people say that or you noted yourself that uh, that there's some of the investigative reports from the 70s and things are, are just really well done and and i've been noting noting that as well going through some of the older clips in the archive and looking for example at a, a cartoon about how this the new york stock exchange works or looking at an old a is for adam cartoon for kids about how nuclear energy works and and noting a lot of the comments from from some of the users saying that uh, you know children's cartoons in the 1950s were more explicit and more detailed and and offered more more actual um, knowledge than than a lot of supposed investigative journalism does these days uh, can you speak to that uh, the, the value of some of these older clips in that regard yeah, I found that surprising as well. Um, I noticed a lot of those comments coming in saying that, um, that they find a lot of these archival clips that were really meant for, I think, a younger audience that, uh, uh, like you said, even some of the cartoons, that uh, that they really address a lot of um, a lot of issues and subjects um, in a more detailed and uh, explicit manner than 
than you'd get today. And, and sometimes in more honesty, uh, in a more honest way as well, because, uh, um, I don't know, there was just a different, was a different time. And, uh, and when they were putting together these productions, I guess they, they spent a lot more time because it wasn't just, uh, you know, something that would be cobbled together in just a few hours. And, and, and just from, you know, the clips I watch of, of the, the news today, I mean, there's really no uh, opportunity for any kind of depth. Um, everything has to be really concise. Um, you know, unless you can make your point in 10 or 30 seconds, uh, there's really no point. And, uh, you know, everything just has to be really quick and rapid fire and then repeated uh, 50 times uh, throughout the day. So it's not really surprising that uh, people find um, a lot of the archival clips more interesting because really there's not much of an opportunity on TV now to, to watch anything that isn't just, you know, pure entertainment or even if it does have uh, an interesting topic or a political one, uh, most of the time the, the, uh, the subject just gets very brief overview. I mean, you're lucky to get a minute of, uh, of something really valuable. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, sometimes you, people might seem to be, you know, yearning for uh, a different decade, but uh, in, in some ways, you know, obviously, you know, politically, it wasn't uh, as as great to live through, but um, certainly like, a lot of the information um, is very useful. And, and in some cases, I try to present it all in an uncensored way. So even if it's something I don't agree with at all, or if it's just propaganda or anything like that, I think even those clips have some kind of value to show that what, you know, what a certain kind of group was trying to present at a certain time. I mean, there's one that's getting a lot of attention now on uh, Germany from 1945, and it was just after the, after the war, and, uh, and it was a, a U.S. government uh, clip basically, you know, describing, like, how this could happen and, you know, uh, saying all these terrible things about how Germany, but making a clear distinction between American Germans and, and Germans living in Germany, and uh, lots of people obviously take offense to that clip, but um, I think it's more to be seen in, in the context of the time and why it was made and, and what point they were trying to get across and what they were trying to convince people of. Um, that's a really important thing, and it's not meant to be a political statement on today. Once again, Eric Dion of thefilmarchive.org, and I would encourage you to go and listen to the entire interview on CorbettReport.com. And if you do, you'll hear that we get into a bit more detail about uh, John Stockwell, the CIA whistleblower who's featured in many of the videos, and who, uh, in some of those videos, I drew heavily upon in my research for the recent series I've been doing for the Eye Opener Report uh, at BoilingFrogsPost.com on the CIA. So, um, t just a veritable fount of information and if that hasn't quite been stressed enough yet in today's episode let me stress it some more because there is just so much here in this uh, this repository of information that I really can't do justice to it just by talking about it so in fact let's go through and let's listen to some examples of some of the incredible clips and information that is contained in this archive now you heard in that interview, we discussed some of our own personal favorite or, or clips that we found interesting from the archive. 
But uh, after the interview was over, uh, Eric sent me a list of uh, links to some of the uh, videos that he personally thinks are, are perhaps most interesting. And this is really just a, a smattering and just an example. I mean, there are thousands of videos in the archive, so I wouldn't take this as a be-all and end-all list by any means. But let's just uh, go over the titles of some of these to give you an idea of some of the information contained in the film archive. We have John Stockwell on The Morality of the CIA. We have CIA mind control techniques, the MK Ultra brainwashing program. We have post-war Germany, 28 months after VE Day. There's Vietnam War raw footage. There's Assignment Iran, U.S. soldiers training the Iranian Imperial Army Special Forces. There's Kill or Be Killed, military weapons and hand-to-hand combat techniques. There's CIA archives, LSD experiment, schizophrenic model psychosis induced by the CIA. There's the CIA's Operation Phoenix program, 1968 to 1972. Uh, And again, that's really just a a smattering of some of the videos in this incredible archive. So so let's take, uh, well, let's start with a a particularly interesting one. And this is just an example, I think, of even not even thinking of it from a political perspective or the ramifications of this. Just, Just watching it is really quite fascinating. So let's take a listen to that very interesting uh, video, CIA Archives, LSD Experiment. The object of this presentation is to demonstrate the effect of MER-17, a new blocking agent, against the development of LSD-25 psychosis. We have used two healthy graduate students in psychology as subjects, but time permits us to show only one. On the first experimental day, Ronnie, aged 22 and weighing 75 kilograms, was given 100 gamma of LSD-25 in distilled water orally. This is a very small quantity of LSD-25, but all investigators report that it is enough to produce a temporary psychotic dissociation state in any healthy adult. The scene which follows shows what happened to Ronnie after he drank the LSD-25 solution. And if you will follow the clock, you will be able to note time intervals accurately. Now, how do you feel after an hour? Uh, like I uh, should be getting sick. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's different in that I'm not. I mean, I'd be sick by this time if I were going to. Feel almost a nausea? Almost is a good word. Anything else? That dryness of throat, but I, I'm a, it feels as though if I did take a drink or something, well, uh, I wouldn't keep it. So uh, just uh, and there is a uh, I have to uh, maintain my attention. It's an effort to uh, to uh, well talk to you right now, for instance. Uh, uh, realities leading. Well, you were talking to Ronnie. Uh, Ron, a, a while ago we separated you and Dick. Do you have any idea why we did that? Uh, no, it's, uh, uh yes I do. Uh, you just separated us to see how we would react. Uh, you felt though that we were separating you to see how you alone reacted. And you felt that we were watching you? Is that right or wrong? No, I, uh, uh, you 
have me watching you on the radio. You don't think we're trying to pull anything on you? No. Well, why did you assume that particular line of inquiry was only about the separation of the two boys? Uh, because I felt at the time of separation that Ronnie did have some very real paranoid feelings and felt as though we separated uh, the two of them so we could spy on Ronnie alone. And yet when he sat down before the camera, he didn't voice any of those paranoid ideas. No, I think it's interesting that he was able to mobilize his defenses and to uh, deny that he did have those feelings at the time. I feel that they were really there. And I think he did uh, show other evidences of paranoid feelings. Ronnie, you look tired, are you? Uh, yeah. Have you got anything particular to report to me? No. Uh, do you feel slowed up? Decidedly. How is your mood? <coughs> are you unhappy? No. You feel gay? No, no, no. No emotions at all. Does it seem like you've been here a great long time? I've lost all the uh, time perception this time. It's probably sometime in the afternoon is all I can tell you. So. Have you had any visual phenomena or any auditory phenomena? I was in on the couch. Uh, I was uh, nothing that can describe it. There were a lot of uh, colors and, and uh, things taking shapes. And were they geometric patterns or were they just sort of like a batik? Were they just sort of run together or what? Um, I'm sorry, what, uh, what were you? You forgot what I asked you. Fascinating stuff, and I do encourage you to go and watch the the full twenty three minutes of that uh, that footage because it's quite interesting, as you can tell from that audio excerpt. But moving right along, let's listen to another one of Eric Dion's recommendations, this time John Stockwell on the morality of the CIA. Now, as I said, John Stockwell is a a CIA whistleblower who was on the Angola task force back in the 1970s, and as such had inside access to some of the CIA's black operations, and in the 1980s went around um, and and gave a great many number of uh, interviews on a lot of documentaries and things like that, um, talking about the CIA and its inner operations. And interestingly enough, uh, recently, in in recent years, assuming he's still alive, uh, he has not really been speaking out or it's uh, difficult to find any really recent stuff about him so so absolutely uh, just fascinating um information and uh, and I, so let's go through just this uh, the audio of this one particular clip on the morality of the CIA but of course there are many many other uh, John Stockwell clips in the film archives including John Stockwell on the culture of the CIA or uh, testifying before Senate or on CIA secrets or influence on the U.S. Congress. But again, I'll let you explore that on your own time. Right now, let's just listen to John Stockwell on the morality of the CIA. I find this very sad, by the way. I find I, It troubles me, uh, not 
uh, obviously because I was once part of all this, but also just as an American citizen to realize that this country is indulging in activities that are just as cruel and just as, as depraved in some cases and almost as extensive as what, for example, the, the Gestapo indulged in in Germany. We haven't uh, liquidated uh, five million Jews, but uh, 800,000 minimum figure people killed in terrorist circumstances in the third world is a lot of people dead. And the responsibility, ultimately, yes, the, you know, it's done by the CIA and it's a secret organization, and therefore we have plausible denial to our own consciences because there's nothing we can do about it, we don't know about it, they didn't consult us. But the other side of that coin is that the CIA is the United States uh, police organ, and what it does, we, the American people, are responsible for. So that in addition to the personal losses of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, we are responsible for the genocide of terrorism that's taking place against the world today in our name and with our tax dollars. And with the changes of the laws and executive orders, the whole apparatus of the intelligence services, including the FBI and their right-wing hit squad buddies like the Nazis and the Klan, are now being able to be turned on the American people. Turned on the American with people. With impunity. Remember that, Lou Wolf mentioning the executive order, which we've all followed with great interest. That, too, is President Reagan going public, bragging about what he's doing with the CIA. But don't forget that the CIA has always functioned extensively inside the United States. The MHKS, you know, a billion-dollar program, was all domestic. And MKUltra experimentation on, a, on American citizens with drugs and LSD and whatnot, uh, that went on for 20 years, and that was inside the United States on American guinea pigs. The opening of mail for 20 years was American citizens' mail. They've always done this thing. The Operation Mongoose war against uh, Cuba was run from, from Florida, and they had uh, over a thousand safe houses and boat docks and whatnot that they were operating from the United States. The training facilities uh, for uh, uh, torture, for interrogation techniques, were in San Antonio, Texas at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, a few years back, and you know that's something that's easy to move somewhere else. I don't know where it is today. John, recently one of the individuals in the CIA that was in charge of these covert operations has recently resigned, and that is Admiral Bobby Inman, who was allegedly second in command at the CIA. It's been widely reported that Inman himself believed that William Casey, who is the director of the CIA, was overly fond of, quote, adventurous but ill-advised CIA operations abroad. And Senator Joseph Biden of Delaware has recently noted, without Inman, the intelligence agencies may be given license to try all kinds of questionable things here and abroad. In the light of what they've been doing, even under Inman already, what would be your comments on the Inman resignation in the future of the CIA? Well, I would have to regret the fact that he left, not that he was a paragon of liberal virtue, but he seemed to be, when compared with uh, William Casey and, and some of the others, Jesse Helms over on the Senate side, Carlucci, his predecessor, he seemed to have some pretty strong instincts for protecting American institutions. He protested the Names of Agents bill at one time, or at least one version of it, 
as being unessential to American national security. And, of course, he got a lot of criticism for that. Uh, it would seem that he was, in, in effect, a moderating influence on some of the crueler instincts of uh, men like Casey, who, of course, is a, a very inept and corrupt individual, the corruption being that he's maintained his own business portfolio. He's a millionaire. While he's CIA director, he's running the CIA. He's running his own businesses. And, of course, from the CIA, he can have some influence on world <laughs> economic matters. He has also been appearing at Republican fundraisers. And, of course, that's one of the biggest no-nos in, uh, in, in uh, United States governmental system, to have the head of a police organization with the influence of the CIA to openly advocate one political party's position and help it raise money. In that kind of a, of a corrupt, adventuresome uh, atmosphere, one would have to regret Edmund's resignation. Uh, the whole milieu, uh, the environment, is favorable to Reagan and the CIA and what they want to accomplish, what they are accomplishing. If you go one step further, and consider uh, Reagan's policies his first year in office. He's muted this a little bit, faced with a clear indication by the American uh, people, populace, about war. Uh, he and, and uh, Attila the Hague were speaking <laughs> constantly about the viability of nuclear war. War was uh, an effective tool. We shouldn't be afraid of war going to war in El Salvador, discussing sending troops into Nicaragua, talking frequently about going to the source quote in Cuba, and uh, talking about, you know, uh, demonstration wars or limited wars, nuclear wars in Europe and whatnot. These people gave every indication that they were looking for war. Now, they have toned this down a little bit in the last two months. First, you saw the turn, we all saw the turn, everybody reads the newspapers, when the polls responded, 89% of the American people said they were, did not favor American uh, military intervention in Nicaragua. And uh, this was a pretty clear indication to the, the president that the American people were not going to support him. He would not be a successful president if he got us into a war. It would be uh, something that he would have trouble selling trouble maintaining. At the same time, there was a move in Congress that uh, if the government of El Salvador didn't modify its human rights positions, they wouldn't get more money for aid. And then the second thing, of course, has been this massive groundswell reaction to his attitudes towards the bomb. And uh, that's national, every corner of the nation, little bitty towns across the nation organizing effectively and having big demonstrations, as well as the big, the big uh, cities, uh, the nation and the world so deeply concerned about the threat of nuclear war and just absolutely horrified that you could possibly have a president in office whose mental capacities were so limited that he would actually talk publicly of demonstration atom bombs in Europe, popping off a bomb to show our will and resolve, limiting nuclear war to Europe and the possibility of surviving nuclear war in the United States. This has horrified people to the point where he's got a big political problem on his hand from the famous ground zero and the freeze. And the result is that it's, it's forcing 
a change in their stated policies and attitudes. They're toning down quite a bit from what they were saying a year ago at this time, for example, responding to the mood of the nation in some frustration, I think, clearly. Well, thank you, John. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> We've exhausted you again, but we appreciate it. Once again, CIA whistleblower John Stockwell, who is heavily featured in the film archive. Now, I wouldn't want you to, to go away from this episode thinking that it's all about the CIA and the FBI and, and things of that nature, although it certainly there certainly is a, a big emphasis on that, and it is a vast repository of information on those subjects. It's also on a vast range of subjects, including including more sort of cultural things that, uh, that, that don't necessarily fit into the general theme of the, the Corbett Report, but are nonetheless quite fascinating. And one example of that that I'd like to highlight is a cartoon from the film archive. There are a number of cartoons from the 50s and, and uh, even earlier and later uh, and that I think are, are particularly interesting. And, and one of the reasons that I find them interesting is reflected in the top comment on this particular cartoon, the Atomic Age cartoon, A is for Adam from 1952. And the top rated comment on YouTube at the moment says, this has more information in 15 minutes than all of today's mass media combined for years. There is nothing informative on TV anymore. I love how they purposely used academic language in this cartoon. That really says something about how far society has shifted from the original mean. Today's media is afraid of using big words for fear that one viewer may not understand. So I guess a five-year-old from 1952 is smarter than any adult today. Well, of course, that is a theme that we've talked about before on this podcast numerous times, especially in our episodes on education and the miseducation system, and our episodes about the social engineers who have really engineered the dumbing down of our society on purpose, as we've gone over many times on this podcast. So it is interesting to see that reflected and very easily demonstrated in cartoons such as this, which... Again, quite rightly, I think, as this commenter points out, you would just never see on mainstream TV in this day and age. age was born. There is no denying that since that moment the shadow of the atom bomb has been across all our lives. All men of goodwill earnestly hope that a realistic control of atomic weapons can and will be achieved. Meanwhile, good sense requires that all of us prepare for any eventuality. But wisdom demands too that we take time to understand this force. Because here, in fact, is the answer to a dream as old as man himself. A giant of limitless power at man's command. And where was it science found that giant? In the atom, a particle so infinitely small that it takes over a hundred billion billion atoms to make up the head of a pin. Just as other millions and quadrillions of atoms are the tiny building blocks which make up everything in the world. Ships and shoes, and sealing wax, and cabbages and kings. Although no one has ever seen an atom, scientists have learned a great deal about how they behave, and there are widely accepted theories as to what they're like. Let's start by meeting a leading authority on the subject, Dr. Atom. 
observing the professor himself, we can see that his structure resembles, in many ways, something almost as vast as the atom is small, the solar system. And there are certain similarities. Here is the center with electrons in surrounding orbits. But whereas the planet's movement trons is slightly different, there are other differences too. Hey, hold it! Thank you. Now, the solar system together is electrical. The electrons, which are negative, are attracted by the protons, which are positive, and vice versa. But here in the nucleus are other particles with no electrical charge, called neutrons. Very important characters, too, as we shall see. And equally important when it comes to atomic energy is what scientists call the atom's binding force. It's a kind of cosmic glue holding the nucleus together. This, then, is a single atom, but certainly not all atoms are alike. There are, in nature, more than 90 basic elements, which is science's term for families of atoms. To scientists, the atoms of the individual atom families, or elements, are identified by number, that is, the number of protons, or positive charges, in their nucleus. And they vary all the way from hydrogen, which has just one proton, to oxygen, with eight protons, to gold, he's rich with 79. Finally, on to the heaviest of all natural elements, uranium, with 92 protons. Now, within each element, or family of atoms, there can be different members, each one having the same number of protons, but differing in the number of neutrons. The total of an atom's protons and neutrons is its atomic weight. Thus, in natural uranium, we have U-234, U-235, and U-238. These different members of the same element or atom family Science calls isotopes. Some elements, tin for instance, have a great many isotopes. Others, like aluminum, are lone wolves with just one. Now, most atoms of most elements are content with their lot in life. We speak of them as being stable, but others are busy day and night being what science calls radioactive. Like radium, throwing off powerful rays along with some of its neutrons and protons until it actually alters its own nuclear structure and changes to another family and then to another until it does become stable at last. This spontaneous changing of elements is called natural transmutation. Its discovery gave men of science an idea. If an atom could change itself, why couldn't man change an atom? Using as bullets the very particles which radium threw off, a noted British scientist bombarded nitrogen and converted it to oxygen. In terms of individual atoms, this is what happened. The radium nucleus threw off an alpha particle consisting of two protons and two neutrons. One of the protons was absorbed into the nitrogen nucleus, turning it to oxygen. This was artificial transmutation, man changing the elements. 
From that first experiment, others by the thousands followed as scientists devised ever more powerful particle accelerators, commonly called atom smashers, to transmute more and more kinds of atoms. All scientifically important, but hardly world-shaking. Then, in 1939, some scientists were experimenting with transmutation of uranium. What would happen, they wondered, if they fired a neutron at a uranium nucleus, already the heaviest in nature? Why not try? So they tried. And the result? Nuclear fission. Instead of a minor change, the atom split in two. Truly a discovery to change the world. For what had happened when the uranium atom split was a kind of double miracle of science. Half of the miracle concerned that binding force we spoke of before, that kind of cosmic glue which holds the atom's nucleus together. We still don't know all about that binding force yet, but we do know it is equivalent to mass. Therefore, we may speak of it as having a kind of weight of its own. Now, the two atoms into which a uranium atom splits also have binding force. But for some reason, it takes less of that glue to hold them together, and in the process of fission, a tiny fraction is left over. What happens to it? It explodes as energy, proving Einstein's theory that mass and energy are really the same. But we spoke of a double miracle. To understand the second one, let's slow down that fission a million or so times. A single particle starts the reaction, splitting the uranium atom. Here now is the release of energy as heat and blast. Here are powerful rays being given off, similar to X-rays. But here, here are free neutrons driven out with tremendous speed. And provided there is sufficient U-235 present, what science calls a critical mass, those neutrons bombard other uranium atoms, causing them to split and split still others. The result? A chain reaction. Over a million, billion, billion atoms exploding within two seconds. And the force? It would take Yankee Stadium full of dynamite to equal the energy released in the complete fission of an amount of U-235 the size of a baseball. With this discovery at the time the free world faced a war for survival, it was little wonder the first thought was a weapon. But how to obtain enough material for even a single bomb? Only a small fraction of natural uranium is the U-235 isotope which will fission in a chain reaction. And to separate enough U-235 quickly enough seemed all but impossible. But the impossible became reality as industry, labor, science, and the military combined their efforts to build Oak Ridge, where enough U-235 was separated to build the first atomic bomb. Now, obviously, even I am just really skimming the surface of the film archive itself with the thousands of videos available, some of them feature-length movies like The Strangler from 1964. Obviously, I have not been able to even really begin seeing the, the full extent of the archive, but, uh, but just browsing through the archives, some of them are just so interesting and so bizarre they almost defy description. Like this, uh, this item from the CIA archives, 
Small Town Espionage, Soviet Spy School Training. After lunch, you will have an opportunity to try each of the devices which you saw in the film. We'll take each of them in turn, learn what makes them work, and then practice the different installations. It is now 12 o'clock. Class is dismissed until 1. No, this is no ordinary college. The curriculum offers conventional courses in American history, geography and chemistry, plus some in photographic techniques, electronics, encrypting and decoding, and lab courses in the use of explosives. Students you see here had to pass some of the most difficult entrance exams in the world. They are a special group. They have to be. The rest of the town's population is just as special. The entire town is a duplicate of what you would find all over the United States. It has modern stores, familiar brand names. The menus offer nothing but standard American dishes. The theater shows the latest Hollywood productions. But it's completely isolated from other population centers. And entirely surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. in the central Ukraine, one of the southern Soviet socialist republics. The entire town is a huge school designed to train Soviet youth how to live, think, and react like their American counterparts. They drive American cars and obey American traffic regulations. They follow the latest news of America, from sports to Hollywood scandals. Their English is not only flawless, but they specialize in dialects and accents. All of the inhabitants in town are instructors. They coach the students how to conduct themselves. taught how to buy like an American. The only genuine feature about Winita is the fence that surrounds it. Winita, school for spies. Small town, USSR. A 
etc., etc. And there are numerous, uh, numerous uh, videos like that, and and different CIA and FBI training videos about how to use cutouts and how to uh, do all sorts of bizarre little uh, raiding homes for for busting homes for drugs and things like that. Uh, lots of weird videos like that uh, that have cropped up in this uh, this archive. And then there are, just as there are some hokum kind of videos like that that uh, one would almost expect to see on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, there are also videos that are unexpectedly, disarmingly, profoundly affecting. As an example of that, I'll direct your attention to a video on the YouTube channel that is on, under the title Cartoon About the Atomic Bombing of Hiroshima that really defies description. It is evidently a Japanese animation, and I'm not sure what time frame it was done in. I'm assuming it looks like maybe the 1950s. And, uh, and it's just absolutely an incredibly profoundly affecting cartoon. There's really no way to, to adequately describe it, and unfortunately the audio, it's its not exactly a silent cartoon, there are sounds, but there is no speaking in the cartoon, so there's no way for me to convey it to you in auditory form in today's podcast, so I will just simply link it, obviously, from the documentation section of today's episode, along with all of the videos listed in this, uh, this podcast episode, so you can go and check it out for yourself, which I hope you do, because, as I say, it really is a, a profoundly moving uh, cartoon documenting the uh, the final moments in the lives of various people who are going about their day on the morning of August 6, 1945 in Hiroshima, Japan. Uh, absolutely just an incredibly incredibly profound uh, and moving cartoon as I said. But making a complete 180 degree turn from that type of very heavy, very sobering material to something completely different as is as one is wont to do when browsing through this extremely diverse catalog of archival footage. There are also a great many number of clips that are really maybe just guilty pleasures just for the sake of entertainment, because as James Evan Pilato often observes on Media Monarchy, it can't be news and politics all of the time. So when browsing through, you'll find such things as episodes of You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx from 1954. Well, just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Mr. Bill Early to be on the show, Groucho. His partner is a public relations consultant, Miss Joan Rosenthal. So, folks, would you come in, please, and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to your bet your life. Say the secret word and divide the hundred dollars. It's a common word, something you find around the house. Wow. <laughs> Mr. Bill Ailey and Joan Rosenthal, eh? Joan, where are you from? Well, I live in a suburb of Chicago called Glencoe, Illinois. Glencoe? Mm -hmm. How old are you, Joan? Twenty-six. Twenty-six. Mm -hmm. Well, young look, that's a lovely age. Especially if you happen to be 38. <laughs> is it Miss or Mrs.? Uh... Well, I'm afraid it's Miss. Well, if you're afraid, I'm not surprised it's Miss. Huh? <laughs> you're very attractive now. What is the reason you're single, Joan? Well, Nice-looking girl, young girl, pretty I hair, teeth. I don't really know. Slim. I keep asking myself, why am I still single? Well, stop asking yourself and ask somebody else. <laughs> Better results that way. Huh? <laughs> Would you like to get married? Yes, I'd like to. Mm -hmm. Why? Any particular reason? Well, I'd like to have family. Mm -hmm. Have you sure. Have you looked for a husband? Yes, I've been looking. Well, you're honest about it. <laughs> Most girls, when they're not married, even if they're attractive, they say, "No, I don't want to get married." Where have you looked specifically for a husband? Well, uh, I've looked in Chicago and. New York, 
Los Angeles, Baltimore, Kansas City, St. Louis. You've got a bigger drag net out than Jack Webb. Ah, Groucho. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, absolutely, as I say, and I don't want to sound like a broken clock or a repeating record, but it really is just such a vast and eclectic mix of material on the film archive that I have no doubt that if you have not yet already looked into it, once you do so, you will be entertained by something that's available on there for some reason. There's there's all sorts of things. And of course, as I say, I've encountered the film archive's work so many times in my own research that I thought it was about time to really highlight this work and uh, and not just uh, highlight the work itself, but also the person behind it. I'm Again, I would like to thank Eric Dion for putting this together because as he says at the end of that interview, it really is just him just doing this in his own free time, really as a hobby. And he's not soliciting donations or expecting any sort of uh, praise or thanks for what he's doing. He's just really doing it. And uh, and it's really people like that, just taking it into their own hands and just doing what they can in their free time can really have a profoundly huge effect, reaching 10 million people on YouTube alone just so far. And I'm sure many, many more people to come as they encounter the work that is being saved, archived, categorized, stored, and, and preserved for future generations uh, on this in this new online world where we suddenly have access to all the media that's ever been created. And I think really that that concept is only beginning to beginning to sink into our collective consciousness and really just how profound a change a revolution in the mind that is so I will leave you there on that heady note and once again just encourage you to go to the film archive and start exploring it for yourself as I say there are thousands of videos in there and I have only really just browsed through the catalog myself there's so much material there to continue to explore and mine so I hope you will do so and let me know about what you find any particular hidden gems in the archive that you think are worthy of perhaps future episodes of this report I'll leave you today with a clip that reflects one of my own great pleasures in life this is the immortal Duke Ellington and his orchestra from The King of American Jazz available on the film archive that's it for today I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Uh, we would like to bring you from the original Newport Jazz Festival to scene, Diminuendo in Blue and Crescendo in Blue with Paul Gonzalez in the Wailing Interval. Thank you.